I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Helen Roy. And I'm Josh Hammer. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we have a, uh, I think, action-packed show for you as we do most weeks. Um, we're going to kick it off, of course, with uh, as much speculation as is possible, as much information as is possible um, of of this, this coup attempt in Russia. Um, then we're going to move to perhaps the most important domestic story. Which is the Hunter whistleblower testimony, and Ben is going to take us through that. Um, Helen is who's joining us today uh, in in place of Emily is going to be talking about closing out Pride Month um, and how this Pride Month might have been slightly different than years past, at least we hope. Um, and finally, I'm going to talk about some comments that Mike Pence made, uh, along with some comments that uh, Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, made and and how far behind the Republican Party is on really understanding the structure of our regime and a lot of the things we talk about each week here. So um, with that, I'm going to kick it over to Josh to talk about this Russia coup. Yeah, the coup that kind of sort of was maybe quasi half coup. Yeah. So the news from this past weekend was what happened in Russia. And I I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Not that I care that much, but I've heard it pronounced a few ways. But you have Jenny Prigozhin, who is the founder of the Wagner Group, which is effectively the Russian equivalent of Blackwater, for those of you who kind of remember, or the Iraq War and Blackwater, private military contractor, mercenary, obviously not a perfect analogy. The lines in post-Soviet Russia between the public and the private sector is uh, not exactly clean, shall we say, but, you know, effectively kind of the private military contractor complement to the formal Russian Ministry of Defense. So Wagner Group has been deployed overseas by Russia for the past number of years to fight some proxy battles on behalf of Putin in places um, like Syria and the Levant region, northern Africa and places like that. And uh, Prigozhin and Wagner have been very, very, very closely affiliated, very, very, very tight allies of Putin since the invasion of Ukraine almost a year and a half ago now. In fact, one might argue, and I, I would argue, I guess, right now, that one of the reasons um, that that Putin is, is still going and that he hasn't fully drawn is that Wagner has basically kind of cleaned up where the Russian military has very clearly not lived up to the hype, lived up to, to international expectations as to what that military is supposed to do when it, when it comes to Ukraine. So long story short, what happened this past weekend, and, and we've gotten kind of glimpses the past few months of Prigozhin not being happy. There's been all these videos that have been leaked. Very difficult, by the way, and this is kind of a major theme of this entire summit. Very difficult to actually get good information out of this entire conflict, out of this entire region of the world, for that matter. That's not an accident. Uh, obviously, the Kremlin has extremely tight control over what information goes out. The same uh, certainly is true of, of Ukraine, I would add as well. But when it comes to Prigozhin, we have seen these videos of him kind of complaining about how the Russian military is leaving his mercenaries out there for basically cannon fodder to be decimated. Wagner was losing up to 100 men a day at some point during various sieges, sieges over the past four to six months or so. And it seems like he basically just had enough. And so what happened was he he took over um, a, a, a town on the Sea of Azov, which is a strategic Russian place called Rostov-on-Don, and then he started marching up towards Moscow. And for a time this past Friday to Saturday, I, I, I guess, the whole world was really watching and wondering whether this is going to, going to be a Russian civil war. Was this going to be a coup? Was Wagner Group going to make it all the way to Moscow? I mean, on their march up there, they ended up shooting down, I think it was seven Russian aircraft, killing 13 Russian service members, many Russian military members, especially in Rostov during that first kind of takeover, they they switched sides effectively. They went from the formal government to Wagner Group. And then when Prigozhin was like 120-ish miles south of Moscow, he just stopped. He just stopped. And apparently what happened was, if you believe the reporting, and it, it seems like this is kind of sort of what happened, uh, I, again, based on the most reliable information we have, which is not, not particularly reliable, it seems like none other than Alexander Lukashenko, who is the the Belarusian quote-unquote president, you might more accurately think of him as a dictator, he's been in power for roughly, roughly three decades, does not exactly um, lead a, a Jeffersonian-style republic, I guess would be an understatement. Um, Lukashenko and Belarus are extremely close allies of Russia. They're one of the only countries to consistently vote with Russia at the United Nations, along with countries like Syria, North Korea, Iran, countries like that, when it comes to Russia's conduct of, of the war over there. 
seemed it's it, so the conclusion was that Lukashenko was able to broker a, a an agreement it seems between Putin and Prigozhin to prevent this all out civil war shots being fired in Moscow and the result is that Prigozhin now is in exile in Belarus a lot of Wagner is going to return to Ukraine at least those who didn't openly rebel they're going to try to reintegrate them into the military and Putin, as of earlier this week, has you know c- c- called them traitors. Recall again that Prigozhin w- was formerly Putin's like top personal chef. He was basically like the closest thing Russia might have to a celebrity chef. He, w- he was a very well known guy, extremely wealthy oligarch in his own right. So I, I, I mean, that kind of leads us to like, what the hell is this all about? <laughs> and I, it, it's honestly, it's open speculation. Like none of us know. I mean, I mean, we, we genuinely do not know. It looks very weird on the outside. Um, it, my basic take on my own podcast uh, that came out this week is that all parties tend to look weaker. Putin looks weaker that he had this kind of internal quasi coup. He didn't kind of get the kill shot on Lukashenko, although I might add that I wouldn't want to be a food tester for Luke, for Prigozhin in Minsk, Belarus right now. I mean, we'll see if he gets Alexander Navalny as a result of this. That wouldn't surprise me in the least. Putin has certainly killed people for far less than what Prigozhin has done here. But, you know, as Ben likes to ask in his columns, qui bono? I mean, who benefits from this? And it's very, very hard to say. I mean, it's not quite a Reichstag fire. I don't think Putin comes out of this looking stronger. You can't discount the possibility that they thought that they would come out of this looking stronger, that Putin and Prigozhin orchestrated this together. How else to explain that such a close Putin ally like Lukashenko was involved in brokering this? That's that's a weird element here as well. And I guess the final thing that I'll say is that the only party that I think undoubtedly does come out of this looking a little better is Ukraine, which was able to capitalize on the Russian chaos by retaking some territory this past weekend. Um, and I, I, I'll kind of just stop rambling there because I want to leave time for comments there. But very, very hard to know what to make of this, but a, certainly a, a, a bizarre twist of events at the very last minute to kind of foreclose this all-out civil war. Yeah, I mean, look, echo what Josh said in terms of not understanding. There is some piece of this that is missing in the understanding of of the West has right now. I just don't see the pieces of this fitting together. I mean, there's people um, speculating that, that, like Josh mentioned, the Reichstag fire comparison. Obviously, Putin has a history um, of, of, uh, you know, false flag staging, false flag events to consolidate power. The reason that doesn't really fit as a narrative here is because you know, Putin looks very weak, having announced on television that these these rebels will be punished, these traitors will be punished. I mean, it, this played out in public, in full view of the Russian public. Um, and that, I mean, doesn't really make sense to me. I mean, then again, maybe like not that I can fully understand what, you know, Putin is thinking, um, but it just doesn't ring right to me that uh, such a display of weakness, especially for a Russian leader, where um, if there's one thing that that we can understand about Russia, it's that, you know, the fear of having a weak leader uh, historically is is looms very large in Russian politics. Um, they have not fared well in times where they had uh, conflict or weak leadership. Um, and so uh, to, the, to my mind, like the, the fact that they announced this publicly, that, that Putin said that Prigozhin and, and Wagner were going to be punished and then they they weren't. Um, and he's allowed to keep his life and go go to Belarus. And, and we all just kind of calm down. I mean, something is off here. I don't know obviously what it is i don't think any of us really know what it is but i don't think that this is this episode is sort of over i don't think putin consolidated more power um through this episode and that actually you know in some ways of course is good for ukraine and the west um because putin's a terrible guy but on the other hand you know chaos and disorder in a nuclear power um or a, or an internal struggle for power um these are not things that people in the west should be excited for um that that kind of chaos in in a, a nuclear armed nation is never a good thing and then um i guess the big question mark for me is is what guarantees prigozhin has i mean I, this lukashenko thing is just ridiculous to me i mean there's no way that lukashenko can guarantee prigozhin's life against putin i mean his his regime is fully beholden to putin so um that is another one this like that's what i don't understand in all of us is what guarantees prigozhin has for his life um and he he seems to have some right, and he was allowed to go. So I, I just that is a piece that is totally missing here. I'll just throw one other uh, little tangential element, which is interesting in this, uh, which is that Prigozhin, of course, and his companies and allies were implicated in uh, Russian interference in the 2016 plus election, and actually 
indicted by Robert Mueller in kind of what turned out to be a joke and an embarrassing prosecution for the U.S. government. Uh, that that little detail didn't really get mentioned, as there seemed to be some building glee in the media about the prospect that it would be Prigozhin who would take over from Putin, which I think, as Inez rightly notes, we have no idea what regime change in Russia looks like the next day for Americans. And one of the things that I was most concerned about in watching this play out in real time was, given that Russia is the preeminent nuclear power in terms of number of nuclear weapons, what happens to the extent there is chaos there? And do you trust our authorities to be protecting the U.S. national interest and U.S. personnel uh, abroad, our assets abroad, as well as Americans at home, to the extent there is chaos within Russia. Uh, so very disturbing and scary, uh, certainly developments there. Uh, I echo the, the thoughts of others. Everything from Russia historically over the last century has been deception. And so it's very hard because Putin is obviously unreliable. Russian state media is unreliable. Our government, to the extent it is being reliable, and we really don't know when it comes to Russia, uh, to the extent it is reliable, oftentimes still has bad information and gets the intelligence completely wrong. And then our media is obviously prejudicial when it comes to all things Russia. So it's a helpless feeling not knowing what to make of developments there. Again, I would just go back to the most important thing from the perspective of U.S. national interest is protecting ourselves in the face of a chaotic nuclear power. And it's yet to be seen uh, what pro provisions have been made, what precautions have been taken, and what movements actually uh, U.S. authorities took in the wake of this and what they're taking to harden us against any potential uh, attacks going forward. I, I really have nothing to add other than to agree with everyone that reading the tea leaves feels kind of fruitless. And 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 so I think sometimes people can be very willing to attribute to um, I'll say thoughtfulness, which that which can be much more easily attributed to, I don't know, drunkenness or, or you know something much much less considerate. Um, so yeah, the, the silliness it, it feels honestly it feels quite silly. Like the, the, there's there's a, a lack of sense to it, as as Inez said. And um, the only thing that I think we can guarantee is that <laughs> that is that the uh, is that America will probably fail or not America, but well, yeah, we'll fail to capitalize on it in a way that's appropriate. <laughs> um, with that, uh, we'll we'll turn back to Ben and um, to give the update on what's happening with the Hunter Biden whistleblower. And I, I actually want to say the Bidens, the corruption charges against the Bidens, because um, Hunter Biden is, is only sort of one piece of this. And I think an overemphasized piece, but Go for it, Ben. Yeah, and that's a that's a really important point that I think is worth making in context of what I think the two major storylines are around the Bidens. First of all, we had that sweetheart plea deal that we discussed a bit last week, which in and of itself, I think, constitutes a cover up and a cover up that is in part emanating from a sweetheart investigation that preceded that sweetheart plea deal, which has now been blown open for the public to see thanks to some unbelievable testimony put forth by two brave whistleblowers. And I think we can confidently say very brave whistleblowers, given that they put their lives, their careers, their reputations on the line to talk about what amounts to systemic, systematic obstruction, uh, subversion, and sabotage of investigations into the Bidens by the Department of Justice at senior most levels, apparently by FBI headquarters to some extent as well, and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware. And so just to put a finer point on what Inez was saying, the notion that Hunter Biden signed a plea deal around tax crimes and a gun-related charge, beyond the fact that they were slaps on the wrist and beyond the fact that it didn't get into Farah and many other crimes, including human trafficking, apparently, that Hunter Biden may have been engaged in, is what actually matters is where the money came from that Biden used in all of these illicit acts. And that is the whole ballgame at the end of the day. It is the Biden family influence peddling operation of which Hunter Biden appeared to have been the bag man and the conduct he and other family members engaged to collect the money in those bags 
that is really the major Biden story. It's not about drug addiction of a son or debauchery and the like. Heinous as the conduct is, disgusting and disturbing and compromising as the conduct is. The scandal has always been about what did Joe Biden know? When did he know it? What money did the Bidens take in? What with what foreign powers and what did they give those foreign powers in return? And how does that impact our national security today? And obviously, given that you have business dealings that have been well detailed with Chinese Communist Party linked entities and individuals, Russian individuals, as well as Ukrainian individuals and beyond, we know obviously that this has massive implications for national security. So I'll talk briefly a bit about the sweetheart investigation that these whistleblowers have exposed, these IRS whistleblowers, one of them being a supervisory special agent who's named Gary Shapley, and another one who's the case agent looking at the tax-related crimes in the IRS's probe uh, of Hunter Biden. So a few things that they allege, and there's pretty substantial evidence to suggest these allegations are completely accurate, are that authorities hid from the IRS investigators critical evidence to their investigation, including around Hunter Biden's laptop and including about this bribe allegation, this $10 million in bribes, five to Joe, five to Hunter Biden that have been alleged uh, by an informant to the FBI, which the FBI, as we know, seemed to have deep sixed in the run up to the 2020 election and then kept from Congress up until the last several weeks and continued to gameplay with redactions on. We we understand, according to these IRS whistleblowers, that the DOJ stymied them in connection with search warrants they wanted to obtain. They obstructed their investigative activities in a number of other ways as well, including, and this was really remarkable to me, tipping off Hunter Biden's defense counsel to the existence of a storage facility that contained the crucial documents behind this putative consulting company that Hunter Biden set up to flow the funds from this influence peddling operation through, as well as tipping Hunter Biden off via tipping the Secret Service off and the, pres the then incoming president, Joe Biden, transition team off to the fact that Hunter Biden was going to be interviewed by IRS agents the night before those interviews happened. Everyone, including Hunter Biden, clammed up with the exception of one person who they went out to interview out of 10 plus individuals that day, uh, Rob Walker. And Rob Walker is the one who released or who testified essentially to the fact that there was this text message and it's been corroborated or rather that there were dealings associations between joe biden and hunter with respect to his chinese communist party linked dealings uh beyond that as i noted you know we saw this evidence of this text message showing hunter biden claiming that joe was right there essentially as leverage to extract millions of dollars from the chinese communist party linked energy company cefc the DOJ explicitly shielded Joe Biden from scrutiny in several ways, including asking the investigators not to broach anything regarding dad or the big guy, which is how he's referred to in the investigation. And we don't know what they didn't actually pursue with respect to Hunter and Joe based upon these IRS whistleblower allegations. They slow walked the investigation and ran out statutes of limitation in certain instances, essentially slow walked going into the 2020 presidential election so that within the cooling off period that the DOJ calls for around elections, there would be no investigative activity. There were, there were The investigators were apparently misled about what prosecutors were thinking in terms of the charges. And then, of course, after they blew the whistle, these IRS whistleblowers, their entire team, an elite team by all accounts, was thrown off the case completely. Last but not least, and this has been highlighted as sort of the biggest aspect of the testimony, is the idea that Merrick Garland may have perjured himself in connection with the DOJ's involvement in the Hunter Biden case. So essentially what the dispute is over is whether the Delaware U.S. attorney, David Weiss, who it's always emphasized by Merrick Garland and others that he was Trump appointed, but let's note that Weiss was supported with substantial confidence of the two Democrat senators uh, from Delaware. And of course, we're talking about the U.S. Attorney's Office in on Joe Biden's home turf, with obviously all the weight that that implies, given his decades in federal office, that Weiss essentially told investigators back in October 2022 that he did not have essentially full charging authority. And in fact, Weiss brought the charges to the venues where they were to be brought in Washington, D.C. and California, where the crimes were committed. And what happened? But the two Joe Biden appointed U.S. attorneys did not grant him charging authority there. 
Merrick Garland has said essentially that he has given David Weiss full authority to bring these charges. So there's a disconnect here between what David Weiss apparently said to a number of people back in October 2022 about his authority and then what Merrick Garland claims is the authority that he gave to David Weiss to bring cases. So one person appears to be lying here. The whistleblowers clearly do not appear to be lying here. And what this exposes is part of a long running cover up by authorities not to pursue Joe Biden and Hunter Biden and the rest of the Biden influence peddling operation and to stymie efforts to investigate it, discredit them. This goes back to the Hunter Biden laptop story with the intelligence community and then federal authorities grooming social media companies to suppress it. This also goes back to the burying of the laptop for many months and the cover up continues. And as we've talked about at length before, the DOJ and FBI have essentially attacked all of Joe Biden's enemies of political opponents, of course, including his chief political opponent going into the 2024 election as well. So the crimes of the Biden family or that they're implicated in appear to be massive. So too does the cover-up, which extends to the entire regime that has circled the wagons around the Biden family here. And that has been blown up now. The plea deal itself, Biden, his protectors, mouthpieces, thought would make the real story of Biden family influence peddling go away. And now it appears that is not the case. So, you know, I kind of leave it up to the group to to tell me, you know, what do you think are the biggest implications of these IRS whistleblower allegations? Are we going to have an impeachment of Merrick Garland or others? Does it mean anything? And all of this, of course, with implications going into the 2024 presidential election as well. So I'd open it up to the group on that note. I, I, so, look, there's a lot to unpack here. Um uh, in, in fairly quick time, unfortunately, um, I, I guess if there's one thing that I will add, uh, it's not necessarily directly pertaining to the IRS, but, you know, I, I think we've undercut, not we, this show, but like we in kind of the right of center commentary have tended to undercover and under discuss Chuck Grassley's claim that he has seen this lightly redacted FD-1023 form pertaining to these calls from, it appears to be Mikola Zlochevsky, the, the founder of Brisma. I, I mean, this is just truly galling, damning stuff. Um, I wrote my whole column on this last week. I mean, a lot of these text messages from Hunter to his people in China referencing how he's sitting next to the big guy, that's kind of getting a lot of the attention. That's really bad. But uh, given the state of U.S. involvement in Ukraine funding that war effort to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars, I, I, I am really personally interested, and I've said, said this a lot over the past few weeks, I am really interested in trying to figure out the extent to which the commander-in-chief and his son might be financially or monetarily compromised when it comes to Ukraine of all countries. That seems like information squarely in the national interest. Unfortunately, I'm not entirely sure how we're going to get to the, to the bottom of it. I, I'm sure that I, I should say I know that James Comer on oversight is trying, but obviously, you know, this thing's going to ultimately resolve in some sort of standoff. I mean, a subpoena, someone's going to not show up to a subpoena. And I, I ultimately do predict your question, Ben, that I think in, in impeachment articles being filed is one way to attempt to resolve this. Um, given Republicans very slim majority in the House, obviously, who knows whether that would ultimately be successful. Yeah, I mean, to me, what stood out from the story is actually well, two things. One, what we have been talking about, which is that um, there is now substantial evidence in the public record that Joe Biden was involved in this corruption. Now, he can still say, I had no idea what my son was doing. And that just as I predicted last week, actually, the, the media and Biden response has been, I love my son. I love my son as though this is an attack on Hunter for being an addict or or whatever. And um, the of course, that's not the point. Like nobody would care that Hunter was an addict, a drug addict, except for the fact that, that we now have evidence that he was influence peddling based on Joe Biden's name. And now we have direct evidence in the public sphere or um, that can be confirmed, corroborated, you know, or denied. Um, but we have that evidence now, more than enough evidence for an investigation into Joe Biden and, and his potential involvement in the corruption being peddled, like the, the, these corrupt deals being made essentially in his name and based on his influence. That is a big deal. All that being said, to me, the much bigger deal here is uh, building the case coming on top of the Durham report and on top of whatever all the other things that we know about the complete corruption of the the FBI and the DOJ and our intelligence services. This is this is um, the the major problem I think confronting sort of any Republican who would want to come into office. Um, this is the sort of thing that cannot be dealt with just by dealing with Joe Biden or even impeaching Joe Biden as sort of un unlikely to get convicted as he is. Um, 
And just as a third point, I'd reiterate, the U.S. as as a country is in a very dangerous position now because we now have two likely front runners for each party, right? Trump and Biden, both of whom have the potential to be convicted and sent to jail, right? Um, and we now have potentially a race between two men and whether whichever one wins, the other one is going to jail. Uh, that's not a good incentive for the peaceful transfer of power, as I've said before. But uh, Helen, I want to get you in here before we transition. That's all right. I, I, have, I have nothing to add to this conversation. Um, but uh, I guess the connecting point is that we've got some some weird sex stuff in the Hunter Biden laptop. Uh, so we can just transition that right over to the uh, weird sex stuff that seems to dominate every month of June forever in perpetuity. Um, so yeah, I, I'll just I'll just jump right into to this Pride Month recap. I feel like a lot of times when we talk about Pride Month, you know, these it starts at the beginning of the month. We everybody everybody can see the the flags going up, the now national flag of rainbow. Uh, and actually, keep, they keep adding colors, and now we're adding like black and brown and and race to this um, collection of identities. <laughs> but anyway. Um, so yeah, we this this tends to get more attention at the beginning of the month, but actually there have been many interesting developments uh, as far as the entire sort of pride movement goes this month. Um, uh, so it, it all started off, and I'm sure everyone is familiar with the the Dylan Mulvaney Bud Light boycotts, uh, where where Bud Light decided to. <laughs> make this this uh tiktok influencer who um as far as i know has not surgically transitioned as far as the sexual organs are concerned but did have facial feminization surgery so he's sort of like a uh he's just a, an intense drag queen like he's he's not exactly you know trans in the fully medical sense but um anyway decided to make this person the new poster boy of bud light people reacted appropriately and but people who drink Bud Light if you know if you can think about their average dem demographic were pretty disgusted by this decision and uh, you know decided to move into a boycott situation now most of the time when conservatives boycott something or they say they're going to boycott something it's just another sort of culture war uh, moment that that dissipates but actually uh, now that, that 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 happened sort of in the end of May, now we're we're sort of approaching the end of June and, and it's it's been about a month. And they the people are saying that they have uh permanently lost nearly a quarter of their business. They've gone, they've uh, I think it's year, you know, month week to week or something. Like if you measure it going from last year to this year, they they're down 25% each week. They've been, I mean, they used to be the number one beer salesman in the country, and th that's just no longer the case. Now, that's, I think, a positive development. Um, but the question is, is this, is it just that they chose this strange man who dances on TikTok to be their spokesperson? Is, is that is that it? Or is that just, was that just sort of the straw that broke the camel's back? I, I kind of think it's the latter. And I think this is a more strong, um, it's a more strong kind of opposition to to this cultural phenomenon than we've ever seen before. Um, the, of course, there were the Target boycotts too. They lost ten billion dollars in ten days after they uh, joined hands with like a satanic gay artist. Uh, to make binders for children and just really weird stuff. This is like, this is a much more financially dramatic situation than I think we've seen in any other boycott before. But let me just get into what I, what I really think it could be. This, the stories that are sort of hiding, <laughs> hiding behind the curtain and really hopefully influencing people to step back. Um, it's not just Dylan Mulvaney. It is the fact that the United States first openly transgender legislator was just arrested on child sex abuse charges. That was this week, okay? 
we can take that in combination with the pride events that have been exposed by libs of TikTok and some other conservative influencers for, well, I no pun intended on exposed, but adults exposing themselves to children. This has actually been going on for a long time, but now I think with, with um, these conservative influencers sort of uh, being able to broadcast it to more people, more people on Twitter, people are beginning to see that, oh, wait, there's something really strange going on here with adults exposing themselves to children. One more thing, um, four kids aged between five and 10 were taken into care after being found at a drag party uh, where full of uh, trans, it was like a sex party um, in Boston. Uh, just very strange stories like this continue to keep cropping up. Legally speaking, um, California has just uh, passed a bill, AB 957, which directs family court judges to award custody based in part on uh, parents' affirmation of their children's gender identity. So all of these things are providing sort of a, a um, further context for what I think is, mm, as I've said, perhaps the strongest backlash to the pride movement that, that we potentially have ever seen. This could be a canary in the coal mine movement and or moment. And I'll just say one more thing that I find very interesting is that corporate America is not using as much rainbow paraphernalia as they did in recent months. I think they can tell that people are, are, are beginning to make connections that are uh, not good for business. So I, I'm curious to see what you guys think about all that. Yeah, I mean, um, we've talked a bit about this in past weeks uh, because throughout June, this has been a back and forth. Um, but yeah, I agree that, and it's a little bit difficult to tell, um, but I agree that there has been a noticeable pullback from corporate America, which is very encouraging. Um, it shows that although corporate power is very, uh, it, it works very well as a tool for the left, um, it's also quite easily scared. Um, and and so that's encouraging in that sense. Um, you know, I, I do think um, that Helen is right. And I think people, this is an opportunity where people are starting to open up the conversation about the negatives of the sexual revolution. If you combine this with a series of books that have come out mostly from the turf side of of the sort of liberal feminist side uh, of, of the political spectrum, you combine it with with the rebellion from that side of the spectrum. And I've, I've, uh, I, in the past, I've definitely um, explained why I don't actually agree with turfs, but just as an observational thing, um, I do think that there are a lot more people who are open to reconsidering certain aspects of the sexual revolution and certain negatives um, that are stemming from the sexual revolution. I don't think this is just about trans kids. I think the the backlash um, against pride has given me hope that actually people are thinking about how a lot of these things might be connected. Um, and just as a, a final sort of interesting slash hopeful point, um, so Ed Krasserstein, who is as far as I can tell an idiot that isn't really worth knowing much but he has like a big Twitter following and um and and so his response to the backlash uh that uh, to what Helen mentioned about adults exposing themselves to children was to compare it to nude beaches in Florida right um and actually I was thinking about the case of nude beaches in, in not just in Florida in many places in the U.S. um and how they demonstrate how a society can put up a firewall between um, the mainstream and a subculture, right? Um, and and really keep that wall in place. Uh, nobody thinks about nude beaches unless they want to go to one. Um, there's no interaction. You're not forced to interact with nude be beach culture or nude colony culture. Um, we don't have you know nude colony ads uh, in Target or in in Walmart or uh, in major banks. Um, there are no nude colony classes being taught in public schools. Um, and and really, this has been a subculture that does their own thing um, and largely leaves the rest of the people alone and has no entrant into the mainstream. Um, and so I think that's like an encouraging case to point out that, yes, in fact, you can have a society that has a certain amount of tolerance um, for some some weird subcultures, um, but th that doesn't allow those subcultures to swallow the mainstream and thus, importantly, have you know, access to families and children in a way that is very, very hard uh, to to like keep out by by parents. So um, with that, I'll toss it to the the other two here. Um, 
So I, I, I live actually very close to one of those infamous new beaches in Florida, probably like a 10 minute drive. I'm happy to say I've never been there. Um, but from what I can tell from driving around there, you don't, you don't really know it's there unless you know it's there. So I think that kind of Inez is kind of anecdotal observation about that, that subculture, which I guess would be kind of a polite way of phrasing um, sort of activity. Um, I, I agree that that kind of keeps in its own ecosystem uh, for sure. Um, real quick here, um, I don't have a whole whole lot to add. We we discussed kind of the decline of the rain jihad during the, you know, during the course of the month of June on some of our pre prior shows. Um, I, I would just say anecdotally, I was I was in Philadelphia this past weekend for a college friend's wedding. And I, I thought the difference in the amount of rainbow paraphernalia and advertising and propaganda that I saw just walking around Philadelphia was demonstrably different than what I see on a day-to-day -day basis living in South Florida. Um, and, you know, you, you can say that that's kind of like the DeSantis effect or the, or the, or the laws that have been passed here. That's, that's probably a part of it. Um, but a lot of it probably is just kind of local governance and and, and local cultures as well. So I, I agree that kind of on net, the, the the pride stuff is probably down this year relative to to, to prior years. But but I do have to say that having been in Philly this past weekend, I, I I was struck by how different actually. My fiance and I were both struck at how different the the rainbow stuff was in Philly uh, compared to South Florida. Well, I think. This illustrates this issue illustrates once again the chasm between the institutions and the public. So I think the the positive this month is that it showed that there are limits to what normies will take in the way of the woke anti-cultural revolution and the woke anti-cultural revolution uh, overstepped relative to the tolerance of the public. And now they're recoiling. That said, there has to be follow through because they will never stop in their march and they may get more surreptitious about it and more clever about it but it will persist and just illustrative still of the chasm is that you still have government agencies government authorities raising the pride flag next to the american flag and i think that's telling what essentially what it represents is supplanting a uniting american creed with what effectively stands for radical gender ideology and sexual ideology. And the fact that our institutions promote that and give the imprimatur of their offices still reflects, I think, how this is baked into and codified in our most influential institutions. So this battle is going to continue uh, for the foreseeable future, certainly. Uh, and I guess for our final segment, I'll, I'll uh, turn to myself here. Um, and I want to highlight two uh, stories that came out recently. One is a comment that Mike Pence uh, made as part of the, the presidential race attacking DeSantis, right? Quote, when the governor of Florida decided to launch a full-scale campaign of governmental retribution against Disney, he wasn't taking a page out of the conservative playbook, right? So this critique, again, that you can't attack corporate power. Um, and I want to juxtapose that against some comments that Larry Fink made, the CEO of BlackRock, um, made recently where he put, he admits that, in fact, um, DeSantis's laws against ESG or, or um, anti-ESG laws have actually uh caused him to lose money um and that he he's worried about that uh he says that the debate around esg he's not using that term anymore um because it's quote politically weaponized and he's quote ashamed to be a part of debate on the issue right um and and this is this is what um right this this is the result of the DeSantis approach, and this is less about, to my mind, about DeSantis as like a candidate, for example, or Mike Pence as a candidate, uh, but about this massive gulf of a divide between a few people who seem to understand, like a handful of Republicans who seem to actually understand the the world we live in and the way that our regime functions, um, and the vast majority of them that still do not, right? The fact that you can have Mike Pence making comments like this, like it's 2012, um, I think just goes to, you know, we, we have these conversations every week on this podcast, and sometimes it feels like we're repeating ourselves and repeating ourselves about the the Dave Reboy phrase, right? Uh, what time it is, right? Knowing what time it is. Um, the vast majority of Republicans uh, in Congress, Republican leadership, this is not just, quote unquote, an establishment thing. The vast majority of our elected representation does not 
understand or doesn't care one or the other, right? I'm, I'm giving it the, con the constructive spin here and say that they just don't understand the world that we're living in. They're working off an ideological framework and a vision of the world that um, really came to a close in, in a lot of ways. And I see it as sort of a historical period between 1945 and 2016. Um, but, but they are very slow, typically with conservatives, right? <laughs> very slow to adjust to a new reality. And they're still working off that old playbook. Um, it's it both gives me sort of my most pessimistic days when I listen to the priorities and how Republican leadership thinks, um, you know, it, the situation that we're in, uh, I think, is a difficult enough situation, a challenging enough situation for the country um, w without having completely useless leadership. Um, but I guess the encouraging part of this is polls show over and over again, especially on these issues, um, for example, um, trust and approval in American corporations among Republicans has slid down to the same level as Democrats. And in fact, Democrats have wiggled up a little bit, as you can imagine, as companies come in on, on behalf of Democratic causes, right? But it, it shows, um, longtime polls show that the Republican voting base does understand this. I really hope um, against hope that this battle in the nomination between Trump and DeSantis in particular uh, does not destroy that understanding in the base that Regardless of who sits in, you know, the next in, in in the Oval Office, if that's even possible, and I'm sure Ben will remind us why it's <laughs> why it may not be, but um, if that's even possible, it's really important that the the sort of DeSantis agenda be adopted more broadly by the right, regardless of who's who's leading it, and not because anyway, I I, I like DeSantis, I favor DeSantis, I'll probably vote for him, I'll be open about that, but like this agenda has to survive this fight between Trump and DeSantis. And it's very discouraging to see it get caught in the crossfire of, of 2024 primaries. Um, because the, the sad thing is there's nobody else, you know, there's, there's a very small handful of people who understand that, for example, corporate power is now being used almost exclusively on behalf of the cultural left. There's a lot of Republicans who either don't understand that or don't care, and they keep demonstrating it basically every week, um, whereas some of the the actual policies that have been passed in Florida, um, as uh, you know, Larry Fink's comments demonstrate, have actually demonstrated some amount of success in scaring a bit of that corporate power. Same thing with the stuff that we talked about with Helen's segment, right? That there actually is a way to push back against this kind of power, but that this this ossified mentality of the Mike Pence's of the world will never succeed in doing that. Yes, I I would just like to add that um, Jordan Peterson has been interviewing um, uh, several different candidates who interviewed RFK and and also had on Mike Pence on his podcast on YouTube. And I laughed out loud at the comment section. Um, and it really demonstrated very clearly where, where the base is at versus like the sort of Mike Pence, Nikki Haley type Republican where they, they how they conceive of themselves so out of touch with reality. The top comments were all like, thank you, Dr. Peterson for having this idiot on uh, to demonstrate to the world why we should never vote for people like him again. I mean, it's just kind of, striking um and and that sort of that 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 is another sort of point that i'll just tack on to this that i think that new media is playing into elections in a way that these old republicans don't understand either they think that they can just hop on these podcasts without understanding the internet subculture of you know you might say the new right uh <laughs> label that gets thrown at i think all of us um and uh yeah, so I mean, I think Trump really understood that perfectly in in 2016, uh, implicitly. I don't, yeah, he, he instinctively he understood that. I think DeSantis would be well served to better understand it, but he seems to get it. He seems to get it pretty well. So it's worth emphasizing, or at least underscoring, that ESG is a fairly rare issue that I think the right is actually winning on. Um, you know, uh, so in Florida, Jimmy, Jimmy Patronus, our our chief financial officer, has totally divested all state investments from BlackRock, Greg Abbott in Texas, if I'm not mistaken, have taken similar actions. There really is kind of this broader kind of red state pushback uh, against ESG. And I'm happy that it has talked about Larry Fink and him trying to kind of get away from the ESG branding. It's also kind of just uh, as a somewhat related point, it's also a nice reminder that you know, the language that we use and the rhetoric and our argumentation really does matter. I, I, I mean, uh, the left figured this out a very long time ago. I, I think back, this is kind of an off-color point, but I, I think it's relevant. I think back to the oral argument in the 
Shelby County case of the Supreme Court a decade or a decade ago or so. And Justice Scalia had this had this funny point in oral arguments where, where the counsel was like, well, if Congress wants to amend the Voting Rights Act, we can just do it. And Justice Scalia was like, but it's called the Voting Rights Act. I mean, it's right there in the name. Who would want to be seen as trying to amend the Voting Rights Act? So the Democrats figured out a very long time ago kind of the power of language and names. Happy to see this kind of DeSantis, Larry Fink thing kind of evincing the Republicans are starting to kind of catch on to that to that game a little bit. I, I obviously agree with Inez's point about kind of the, the the proper view of the conception of corporate power and the utility or lack thereof that it currently plays in conducing to a healthy and sound politics. It seems more often than not that corporate power, especially in consolidated form in the Lamandi's industries, often redounds against the interests of the common good. And I think that a, a proper political economy that the right adopts should reflect that. A, a final real quick point on Mike Pence before kicking over to Ben. You know, Mike Pence is a total fraud on this issue. I would just be very, very blunt and clear about that. This is a man who calls himself a principled warrior. Um, he is anything but that when it comes to this particular issue. He is a corporate stooge. He, he, he and Nikki Haley are kind of the, the boomer con archetypes of this entire election cycle. Tim Scott, to perhaps a very slightly lesser extent, fits that, that characterization as well. But, you know, I have a long enough memory to remember when Mike Pence was governor of Indiana in 2015 and capitulated like like a, a bedwetting coward when it came to the RIFRA fight in the Hoosier state at that time. There was this whole pushback from corporate America about watering down the the religious freedom restoration at the mini RIFRA bill that Indiana was pushing through. And Mike Pence did everything that he could to appease the corporate lobby, much, much to the chagrin of social conservatives. In fact, I distinctly remember Robbie George, the professor of Princeton, kind of the iconic social conservative, you know, heavily, heavily criticizing Pence and saying that he would not forget what Mike Pence did. So unfortunately, this is kind of standard operating procedure when it comes to Mike Pence. Well, just as a general matter on the idea of uh, Republicans, prominent Republicans, not necessarily knowing what time it is, I always think it's worth thinking through how do they end up espousing the positions that they espouse? Is it because they truly in their heart of hearts believe them? Is it because campaign consultants are whispering into their ear whatever the campaign consultants want to whisper in their ear? Or is it because this is what they believe that donors want and the the money of donors is their lifeblood? And I think that's always something worth keeping in mind when it comes to how it can appear that prominent Republicans, and this obviously goes to you know leadership in the party and beyond, take positions that are so antithetical to the ones that resonate with the cohorts in the Republican Party where the energy actually is. Uh, beyond that, I, I would say... Um, you know, it is interesting, and we'll probably be studying for many years the backlash against ESG and how this was actually appears to be something successful in terms of you know building activist sentiment against it in terms of state attorneys general investigating the entities that were set up to push ESG and beyond. Is this a unique issue because energy is the lifeblood of so many states and many of those states happen to be red states and so thus there's a backlash? Uh, is it because people see this in a broader context of kind of a globalist elite uh, using these tools to try and control us and ultimately reduce our standards of living and usurp our power? Um, or is it something beyond that? And also, is, is this a uniquely pivotal issue that conservatives appear to be winning on because corporations, frankly, are generally cowardly and want to avoid conflict. They've always had pressure from the left. They've never had pressure from the right on these issues. So to the extent the, the right even pushes a little bit, it causes them to course correct. Uh, we'll see. But I do think it's worth thinking through, you know, is this a case study that we can use? And is it something that can be replicated in other areas as well? Actually, um, we're going to turn to final thoughts now, and I'll, I'll jump in first on this because I think it's very much a continuation of what Ben just said. Um, I, I want to put out a note of caution, um, and and this is uh, based on the Common Core fight, another fight where you had a phrase that was sort of frozen in the, polit the like political discourse where activists came out against it, something that was a machine that both left and right were on board for. Um, meaning Republicans and Democrats both equally uh, encouraged Common Core. It started as a uh, sort of um, confab of states, uh, many of them Republican. This is when a lot of the education reform energy was on the right. Um, so a few activists basically said, this is bad. They started spreading the word. These are the Tea Party era days. Um, 
And it had an enormous impact. The enormous impact is that every single Republican politician stopped using the word Common Core. That was the impact because Common Core is, in fact, now enshrined in almost, I think it's 42 states, including many Republican states. It's just called something else. Um, so that that's the, I guess, the word of caution here is, you know, even in those comments that uh, Larry Larry Fink, right, um, were made, he said, I'm not going to be using the phrase ESG anymore. But that doesn't mean that his firm is not going to make investment decisions based on political or cultural considerations, right? Um, so I think it's, it's you know, a little early to, to declare victory. Um, but even though I think that this, this focus, um, and especially the legislation passed by DeSantis, and I believe also Texas, I'm sure Josh can correct me, uh, but there are a couple Republican states that have passed very solid legislation that actually disallows corporations from doing this. Um, which is, it, that, that second piece is very, very important because sometimes the backlash just makes people, and especially politicians, talk, stop talking about something, relabel it, and, and the revolution moves on. Um, um, and actually, it's very connected to what I wanted to bring up, which is um, a very disappointing move uh, from RFK Jr., right? Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Obviously, he has some um, out there views, for example, about measles vaccines and others. Um, but that has actually been my less of my problem than what he just did. Um, he was invited to the Moms for Liberty conference. Moms for Liberty um, is a, a, a very successful parent group, has a lot of grassroots support um, that has come together over first the issue of COVID closures and mandates um, in schools and now over largely over content in schools. Um, it, it is a grassroots movement. They have thousands and thousands of, of moms um, involved in this. And um it's very encouraging, by the way, to see that they have both Trump and DeSantis are invited and will speak at this conference. Um, and they had RFK Jr. as well. Presumably, they extended invitations to a lot of different candidates, but those are the ones that accepted. And I think it it is encouraging sign about how central the parent movement continues to be to the energy on the right. Um, but so because this conference is going on, there was a MSM hit that went out on Moms for Liberty. They took a piece. Uh, this is actually kind of funny. They took a piece of their newsletter where they quoted Hitler about, uh, you know, capturing the minds of the youth for a generation. Right. Um, and, and they put it in this very obvious in the context that what they were doing is saying this is what the other side wants to do. They want to capture the minds of our children. Right. Um, but the way that the MSM wrote about it was Moms for Liberty praises Hitler. Right. Uh, which is just ridiculous. Uh, but apparently it was enough to get RFK Jr. to drop out of this conference. And I just find that to be very funny for a man who is asking everyone to sort of broaden their Overton windows uh, to accept some of one, one some of his more bizarre views, um, but apparently has no tolerance for a very normy sort of uh, thing to do for this mom's newsletter, which is pointing to the fact that authoritarian regimes often seek to capture the education system. So I'll just, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um... All right. So we're recording this on Tuesday. So the Supreme Court term is not quite over. And I kind of presume that our, you know, on our show next week, I'll probably do some sort of like end of term review and big cases, whatever. So we're still awaiting, as of time of this recording, some major decisions, affirmative action being the biggest decision. We're also awaiting this big case out of Colorado in a, in a case called 303 Creative, which is kind of just a reprisal of, of many of the same issues from the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, although except for here, it's not a Bake the Damn Cake Bigot case. It's a Design the Damn Website Bigot case. Um, but very different, uh, very similar, excuse me. It's even out of Colorado. It's, it's the same statute. It's almost kind of eerie, the similarities. Maybe the court will finally do something this time to actually have a decisive ruling when it comes to the intersection of LGBT, religious liberty, First Amendment, free speech, and, and all those thorny issues. I, I guess because, again, it's Tuesday and the term's not quite over, I just wanted to briefly flag that there was a case this morning, Moore versus Harper, that came out of North Carolina pertaining to the so-called independent state legislature uh, authority theory, um, which is basically kind of a, a lawyerly way of saying that Article 1, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution does seem to give state legislatures effective plenary power when it comes to deciding the the rules for, for federal elections. And the, the case here pertained basically to uh, the, the, the appropriate level or lack thereof, I should say, of, of judicial review of how much federal courts can get in. Um, when you have kind of a state court interpreting um, a, a, a state, uh, a, interpreting a state legislature's possible violation of the state constitution. Anyway, it, it's kind of like an old law school hypothetical, what happened here. 
it got a lot of attention in the mainstream media because a lot of Democrats and libs were, were freaking out that the so-called independent state legislature authority theory was kind of like, uh, you know, crypto ability for red states this to do that. And I just want to say that it is yet another reminder that this big, bad, scary conservative Supreme Court is, is really anything other than that. Um, it was it was it was a very lame six three opinion written by Chief Justice John Roberts that basically cited exactly the way that the MSNBC New York Times crowd would have wanted this case to come out. They were joined by Amy Coney Barrett and, and Brett Kavanaugh. Um, I thought Clarence Thomas's dissent was very clearly correct and basically arguing that, that that this case, because the North Carolina Supreme Court overruled its previous opinion, should have been dismissed as moot, and it was incorrect on the merits as well. Anyway, um, the takeaway that I just want to just make here is it's yet another reminder, and I know the listeners and viewers of the show already know that, that this overwrought faux hysteria about this right-wing fascist Supreme Court is utter and complete nonsense. And I say that even if the affirmative action and the three, three creative cases both come out the correct way later this week after this recording finishes, because there, there was just so much evidence right now. There was that case out of Alabama just a couple of weeks ago to redistricting where Brett Kavanaugh, you know, who seemingly is, is still kind of virtue signaling to try to make up for what happened to him during his September 2018 nomination. Uh, he, he went with the libs in the Alabama redistricting fight and kind of a, a misreading, I would argue, of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And yet again, today, in Moore versus Harper, you had Barrett and Kavanaugh join the libs. So um, the Supreme Court is just simply not what many people think it is. Um, and, you know, one final quick thought here. You know, Ron DeSantis was criticized by some in Trump world a couple of weeks ago when he was on someone's show. It might have been Hugh Hewitt's radio show. And and he said that none of Trump's three Supreme Court picks, Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett or Brett Kavanaugh, were as good as Clarence Thomas or Sam Alito. And you kind of had this this talking point back from the Mar-a-Lago crew basically saying like, oh, they overturned Roe, Dobbs. And yes, that's obviously true. And thank God we overturned Roe versus Wade. Dobbs was something worth celebrating. In fact, it didn't even go far enough in my book. But I just want to very quickly say that Ron DeSantis's comment there was absolutely emphatically correct, that there is simply no way that anyone can view the actual evidence of how Gorsuch, Barrett, and Kavanaugh have voted case in and case out. There are literally only two consistent conservatives on the U.S. Supreme Court, two, not three, but two, and they are Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito. That's really it. Just to echo the point about it being Thomas, Alito, and then everyone else, it's worth noting that there's a concerted information operation, I would argue, to delegitimize and destroy the Supreme Court. There are any number of reasons why progressives are engaged in that information operation. But just think about the fact that you have 22% of justices on the Supreme Court who are going to vote rightly, as we understand it, virtually every time. The left cannot tolerate two out of nine people in that institution having a say. That And that shows you the totalitarian nature of their lust for power and their inability to tolerate any dissent. Uh, so on that note, I will say one uh, positive development. This week, earlier this week, the House Weaponization Subcommittee put out a report on CISA, which uh, as listeners and viewers know, it has been a huge focus of mine as kind of the linchpin of fe the federal government censorship and, and mass surveillance regime directly and by proxy, targeting wrong think via social media platforms. Uh, this report kind of goes into how CISA came to be the linchpin of those efforts, the nefarious and arguably illegal, and I think clearly illegal First Amendment uh, suppressing acts, violating acts that it is engaged in. Uh, and really how CISA has tried to cover it up and how its putatively private sector partners have worked with it to cover it up. Um, so kudos to the Weaponization Committee for developing that report. It had some really rich and interesting details and texture, where even the pro-censorship partners on the outside were kind of taken aback by the federal authorities' efforts to suppress domestic wrongthink. Still, many parties who have uh, faced records requests associated with essentially exposing the size, scope, and nature of the public-private mass censorship regime are resisting. The Biden Justice Department itself has called on certain of these parties not to cooperate effectively with oversight efforts. There are other committees as well, including the Homeland Security Committee, 
that have been probing CISA and other agency efforts and collusion with outside parties to build this censorship regime. Uh, by the same token, there's some legislation that's being pushed through within the Republican House aimed at curtailing federal funding of these efforts and federal support for these efforts. So that's all great work by Republicans. It's yet to be seen whether and to what extent this censorship regime truly is dismantling or uh, strategically trying to go underground, essentially, as the left always does. And as Inez was warning us about with respect to Common Core, if we go back to ACORN being exposed years ago, ACORN morphed. This is how the left operates. They never stop fighting. Uh, they deflect, they deny, they obstruct. Then when the story turns out to be true, they say it's a nothing burger and they've moved on to the next operation. And I will say that one of the most important things to emphasize with respect to exposing the censorship regime and seeking to defund and dismantle it is that we don't know what efforts are being planned and executed right now going into 2024 as well. We can only imagine the kind of election interference that is going to befall us via the social media companies and perhaps beyond with tacit or explicit federal government support. So that also has to be in the crosshairs of those who are probing these issues. And we'll see if the Missouri v. Biden case as well might help prevail in terms of creating an injunction and, and forestalling the federal government from engaging in these acts. But nevertheless, it's a good week for transparency uh, from Republicans in the House, and, and hopefully they use their legislative powers to the fullest extent to bring this regime to heel. I really have nothing to add. It's been really nice sitting with you all and guesting here today. Well, in that case, on behalf of Helen, we thank for pinch hitting to this week for Emily, um, Josh and Ben. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Inez Stepman, and we'll see you at the next NatCon squad.